Hi, welcome to the Mohua Show. My name is Mohua Chinappa and I am an author, entrepreneur and ex-housewife. This podcast is about everything from business to technology to arts to lifestyle but done and spoken imandari se. Hi, in today's episode we have Tatiana Seryan. Tatiana is a system change organizer in the NYC area. Currently she's working with Extinction Rebellion in the United Kingdom which we will ask her to explain to us a little bit more about this. She's also spearheading an initiative called the Global Rebellion whose goal is to construct an archive of best practices for system change and linked collaboration space for activists, organizations and individuals who are inspired to create change. Welcome Tatiana in today's episode and I would like you to take me back to your journey. I remember when we spoke you said you're from Armenia and I've seen you so much on Clubhouse and we've met on Clubhouse where you have been advocating about Afghan women and children who want to leave the country. What got you into this whole thing? Was it because you too come from a space where you have left your own place and you know have felt the entire shift and that's how your heart reaches out? What was the journey, Tatiana? So I think it was uh, sort of a multiplicity of things. I think um, first and foremost, I started a room almost two months ago at this point where I just wanted to learn more about the consequences of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think as I was explaining to you, my friends and I were in that room and we spent our paltry you know, knowledge in about 45 minutes. And much to my surprise and everlasting gratitude, some Afghan people came in who were you know, within Afghanistan and, and from the diaspora. And they started telling us their stories and their lived experience and what they were going through and their sense of betrayal and grief and anguish and shock and disbelief, you know, and um, more kept coming because, you know, that's the, how the algorithm works. And we had at one point over 400 people in the room and it was, we were only planning on having the room for about two hours. It lasted over 14 stayed up the whole night just hearing of people pouring their heart out, you know? And as the night progressed, I, I think I just, I fell in love, you know, with the Afghan people, with my growing sense. Um, I think I didn't fall in love with this, but I had a growing sense of understanding of the United States, like utter betrayal, uh, how deeply it was impacting the people, how panicked they were about what their future looked like. And I'm, you know, a hyper empathetic person, so I just feel like it's left me in like indelibly changed, you know, I think. And in addition to that, you know, being Armenian, even though I'm not from Armenia proper, I was born in Istanbul and my family emigrated to the United States when I was a baby. Um, it gave me a sense of just fundamental humanistic solidarity and shared trauma because like I too am a child of genocide you know, and I could very well imagine intimately so what they were facing, not in any way to be presumptuous and say, I know what they're going through because absolutely not, but um, it just really struck a nerve with me and I've not been able to think about or do much <laughs> about anything other than a fun sense. 
it's amazing when you say this to me tatiana that you know i've had the most amazing guests from clubhouse because i was just talking to a friend of mine and they were saying oh no you know what it's become very very sexual in nature and just yesterday in fact i of course i mean like any digital platform and any new app that comes up there would be this whole lot uh, you know of stuff like this and i was in utterly shocked with some of the rooms that they were called the red rooms actually on clubhouse and um, it to my absolute horror and dismay there were you know people um, you know making out and there were sounds and it was it was really i mean to me it was i was in shock and but then each to his own i kind of i'm not the person to judge because there are so many lonely people in this world and probably you know they need to know that there is another human being or i don't know whatever is their voyeuristic or their kinky sense of sex but to me like i will come back to what you're talking about you know clubhouse and you know you started a room and uh, you know with just a few of your friends and um you know and knowing the situation in afghanistan i personally was extremely distraught because like you said that you've been uh, you know a child of genocide i have been also a child who has seen um, you know terror insurgency as a very young girl you know because in india within india there's so much of um, issues in the north east of india which is not is addressed but it like probably just gets hidden in the annals of so much more that happens all across uh, mainstream india and of course um, internationally too so i kind of understand fear i understand betrayal uh, i uh, not to sound pompous but i also i i know what it is like probably as a woman to be in a place where you know you're you're threatened of just your gender so coming back to the fact that you know you were born in istanbul okay one of my favorite countries this it's so beautiful and um why what is the kind of personal genocide that you know you have faced and uh, i would really like our listeners to hear from you your lived experience So it was intergenerational. It was the trauma of my grandmother and and her generation. Um, so in 1915, the Armenian genocide occurred against the backdrop of World War One, and um, you know people, as usually happens under fascism, right? They round up the intelligentsia and kill them first. And there were just there were there had been pogroms already that sort of. um burst out you know with economic despair because that's usually when these kinds of tensions tend to heighten uh and like starting in the late 1800s but then in 1915 it reached like this frenzy and climax where armenians were rounded up and marched to the desert in derozor uh syria and those who didn't die on the trek were slaughtered once they got there and what happened with my personal family i mean so my grandmother's entire like the children of in her immediate family were all kidnapped and went to different places and were somehow amazingly miraculously reunited but um she was 5 years old at the time and had managed to escape much to her credit and also much to her credit because i don't think i would have known this as a 5 year old She realized that there were nutrients in the clay-rich dirt and she was starving and she sucked on the dirt for nutrients to survive until uh her older sister's fiance was able to discover her and and bring her back home. But you know, 
Had she not done that, I wouldn't be here now. So, well done. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, you know, we all are aware intellectually of the miraculous sort of infinitesimal mathematical, uh, like, anti-likelihood of, of our birth. But with, with stories like that, you, be, you come to appreciate it all the more, you know, like, I'm really aware of how I almost didn't get here, you know? Yes, absolutely. It is absolutely. I so agree with you because, I mean, that's exactly how, you know, in India during partition, the Punjabis, the Sindhis and the Bengalis were the three communities that faced the onslaught of partition. And um, yes, uh, you know, my grandparents also had moved from Bangladesh into India and of course, they've seen mayhem around them. And I've seen it, I mean, as a young girl, when um, there was insurgency. So I know exactly what you're saying. Um, coming back to the lived experiences of the Afghans, because this is such a hot topic. And, you know, for all of us, we are outside. Like you said, you know, we can be very intellectual about this whole thing and write long stories. But unless you've lived that experience, you know, you would never be able to kind of completely comprehend what fear is, what that sense of betrayal is. So do share with uh, the listeners you know what is it that um, some of the lived experiences of the Afghans that they shared with you on uh, you know the clubhouse room it would be wonderful to know I mean there's just lots of stories of the brutality of the Taliban from you know what they remember of what their parents have told them of the earlier era and then to see that horror sweeping across their nation again um, you know there's one story I mean there's lots of stories of brutality that you know I'm sure I can share but there's one story that strikes me in particular because it shows what simple freedoms are also being taken away. So my friend Sahya Jan, she uh, was talking about a friend of hers who's a singer. And as many, I'm sure, know, artists are in particular danger because there is no room for music anymore. They don't need performers anymore. And the Taliban have a hit list that started out with 100 people and now there's like tens of thousands on it. Um, and it includes former government, government employees, women's um, rights activists, humanitarian activists, female journalists, etc. Anyone who's ever worked in any way with any of the allied forces, um, police force, etc. And, and performers, performers, unbelievably. And the, my friend's friend in, in Kabul wanted so badly to just be able to sing. And she was so frightened because, of course, they've banned music in public. And I'm sure if it spills out into the public sphere, it's still going to attract attention. But she had to go hide in a closet just to sing a song to my friend. I just got tears in my eyes just to listen to this, Tatiana. It's, uh, it's unbelievable what you're saying. I mean, uh, please tell me. I mean, just to think that something as simple as, you know, one's own instrument, right? Your voice could yes. be so horrendously muted. I mean, bad enough that you need to cover up and apparently the Taliban have become, you know, um, uh, clothing designers now because have you seen the ridiculous new outfits they brought out that are even more covered up than a regular burqa? What is this new covered up outfit that they have introduced, the Taliban in Afghanistan? So um, we're, I think, all familiar with the image of the bright blue burqa with the eye screen. Yes. Because, you know, even women's eyes are apparently too much for men to control themselves around. Well, apparently that wasn't enough because in allowing women's sight, you still allowed yourself a view of their eyes somewhat. So they brought out this new all black 
garb that has sort of a, I guess I'd describe it as like a flap at the forehead that comes down and covers your eyes. So if you're standing up and looking straight ahead, all you'd be able to see is, is like down the sidewalk right in front of you. You can't see, it's like blinders on a horse, but like on the front as well. It just, it's a drape over their eyes. So there's no way there's like an accidental glimpse of eyes at all. And they have to wear these like um, sort of elbow length, I think, gloves. So there's no hands showing. It's insanity. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I'm speechless, Tatiana, that women across the world, you know, we are quiet and we are, you know, because none of us, I mean, I don't know how one can reach out with this. Um, Oh my God, my heart just reaches out for the women of Afghanistan. Now, coming back to the work also that you do, you know, I mean, um, this, uh, the topic on feminism and oppression and war and uh, drought and famine and climate change, the people who, the people who suffer the most are women. They're always the women who suffer the most, you know. So you talk about this Extinction Rebellion, you know, which you've done in the United Kingdom. I mean, um, this is, and which you guys address the ecological crisis, right? So Tatiana, tell me a little bit about this work that you do. So Extinction Rebellion was started in 2018 with about 15 co-founders. And essentially... Extinction Rebellion works on the nonviolence model of, you know, Gandhi or Martin Luther King. It's about um, doing sort of very art-directed, artistic protests that capture the imagination and really frame for people in an emotional way what's happening. But we do realize that, you know, look, for 30, 30 years ago, we all learned in school or somewhere that, you know, the climate crisis, we all kind of expected the smart people in the room to be working on it. And for all these years... Not to say that scientists haven't done good work. Of course they have, but no one's been listening. You know, people have written letters, they've done petitions, they've done all they've called their senators, and well, our governments are sleepwalking us into disaster. And it's because killing the planet is profitable still. And we realized at Extinction Rebellion, both with our protests and knowing that, you know, if you don't cause economic disruption, like blocking a road, no one's going to care. So that's why we do that kind of protest. Though you don't have to do that. Obviously, there's a privilege to white people getting arrested over, you know, communities that have been historically oppressed. So there's lots of different ways to support. It's not that people are mandated to do that. But now we're actually introducing a new focus for Extinction Rebellion as a whole called Money Rebellion, which is the specific team that I work on. And Money Rebellion essentially is working to upskill people's fiscal literacy in helping them to understand that the reason why we're not getting any effective action on climate change is because the fi- you know the political economy essentially and that's not just finance but you know so yes it's banks and and insurance companies but also you know think tanks and government and the media the entire interwoven web of influence ha- is colluding for their mutual profits to keep us you know, to keep themselves in profit and us from affecting any change. So this is why we're specifically focusing on, you know, banks, on fossil fuel funders. We have amazing organizations like BankTrack and uh, Positive Money and Rainforest Action Network that put out reports of which banks are funding fossil fuels to which percentage to how many billions of dollars. We know who the biggest polluting banks are, and we are attacking them aggressively and consistently and you know, unflaggingly because 
if if we don't get this right, we only have a few, we have much we have far fewer years left to address this than anybody wants anyone to know about, and that's why we are not aware because how bad it is right now should be front page news every day. Absolutely. In India, it's crazy, you know, when you go in, you see the workers, you know, they're just trapped in work and they're exploited, you know, their entire lives to pay off a huge debt. So if you go and talk to them about, you know, climate change or you talk to them about any of these things, they don't matter because essentially at the end of the day, all they're worrying about is their two square meals. And, you know, whenever there's a drought and, you know, I mean, there was this absolutely crazy story in Assam. Uh, which is in India, you know, in the northeast of India, a young girl, you know, who was bleeding profusely because she had her periods and she did not even have basic sanitation of pads, you know, to buy, sanitary napkins to buy. And she picked up mud and she put that into her panty to stop from bleeding completely out, you know, in the uh, in the camp that they were, were given shelter till, you know, an NGO got together and then started giving them uh, the sanitary napkins. So, you know, you're so right when you talk about this entire thing where finance uh, is money and understanding how money should, you know, be distributed um, among also the workers and they getting literate about money is such an, imp- it's I think the basic of um you know of of change, but the basic of change, the basis, the genesis, the genesis of change in India is also education because we have so much of illiteracy here in many parts, and you know, and that's where the entire problem begins. Um, so, Tatiana, tell me a little bit about your personal life. How did you get into this sort of work? Obviously, you are an activist with a voice that can be heard, with the passion, with the empathy. And, you know, that's how you and me connected because I would like to believe that, you know, empathy is that one thing that has brought me back into work. So tell me a little bit about your personal story and how, you know, you got into this. Um, Because I really feel that somewhere empathy doesn't come as a gift to every human being unless you've gone through struggles in your life. And, uh, you know, you know what it is to be on the other side. Um, So did any incident in your life shape up to be the Tatiana that I'm talking to today? Uh, Indeed, I don't. (laughs) Um, So I do believe that trauma, if if negotiated well, is an incredible uh, eye-opening window into what matters as humanity. And, you know... There's a great line from a Leonard Cohen song where he says, there's a crack, a crack in everything. Oh, I love Leonard Cohen. My God. But that's how the light gets. Yes, that's how the light gets in. In ourselves. And so I actually had, I mean, this is such a, you know, commonplace story. I had a particularly difficult uh, childhood with um, a very sort of malignant narcissistic mother and You know, I faced, between both my parents, I faced pretty much every kind of abuse you can imagine. And it was horrendous. And I think it was those, it was that crucible that shaped me into realizing that I have to, and and not not in this sort of like hippy-dippy new age way where like, you know, you've got to love yourself for anybody else to love you. It was the emergency. I have to love myself because no one else here can. So I had to learn resilience quite young. I had to learn, I think that's also where my empathy, like my um, my intuitiveness about other people's emotions comes from, because I had to be able to tell, you know, when somebody got home from work, what kind of mood they were in within 12 seconds, you know, did they put their keys down gently or did they throw them down? You know what I mean? Like all these little cues. 
have made me very, very attuned to people's like nonverbal signals, for example. And um, yeah, I think, I think in going through that, I, I wrote a piece one time where I said, you know, I know what it feels like to feel defenseless and undefended. And I don't want anyone to feel like that ever in life. So it feels like, you know, Alice Walker said, you know, the activism is the rent we pay for being on this planet. And if I can in any way serve humanity and, and give back to this universe for granting me the blessing of this life and, and giving it a just gratitude um, by being an instrument of sort of cosmic love into the hearts and onto the faces of humanity, then that is what... Hats off to you, Tatiana, because uh, you speak to my heart and uh, that's exactly what is my mission too. You know, that's what I want to do in my life, that I have all the gratitude. I went through an absolutely debilitating illness, which was also psychosomatic. And we can talk off the record someday about that. And, uh, you know, it left me bedridden with one eye that I was almost going to lose, an arm that didn't move beyond the elbow. And some of my regular listeners, may I may have spoken about it in the past because that's a trauma that I my body didn't forget, you know. And, um, you know, a toe that... <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't walk. I was bedridden. And um, so this is my gratitude. And I know that I write a lot and I talk to a lot of women all across the globe, you know, and I bring them, bring their stories forward, you know, on abuse, on emotional abuse, on narcissism, on, you know, on domestic violence, on rape survivors, uh, you know, children from the sex workers, um, you know, their, their children and how they have negotiated life and their own trauma and uh, I just so agree with you that, you know, I have this gratitude that my voice is still there to be able to share with them a small part of my journey and their journey so that people know that, you know what, when you are facing the greatest trauma of your life, you can still emerge if you know that resilience is something that we are all born with, you know. And me too, I have exactly like you said, all the gratitude in the world for being able to do this. And I mean, look at the odds that, you know, you and me met on Clubhouse and I heard you speak and I can hear the passion in you when you talk and congratulations on that. And I, and I know, you know, I know someday you and me will meet and I'm so sure about it, Tatiana, when I'm saying this to you and this is on record, I know we will meet because we have a similar shared journey as a woman, as um children uh, you know who have also faced toxic um, toxicity in their lives and um, yes um, I wish you all the best Tatiana for all the work that you do and um, like you said you know I repeat once again words uh, Cohen's lines that says there is a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in thank you Tatiana for being on today's episode thank you so much to you, our dearest listeners, you can find us on your favorite streaming services, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcast, and of course, on all other major streaming services. With loads of love, we are The Mohua Show, where we talk imandari se.